I'm Leanne Bell. I'm Janelle Morin. And I'm Kyla Fisher. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. And we're recording on March 4th, 2018. And you've probably noticed that neither Dave nor Ryan is here. So we decided the Dave Berta podcast was a little too dude heavy and that it was long past time we introduced some female perspective here. So today we're going to be talking about the Me Too movement, how it's impacted us, and we'll share some of our Me Too stories. We'll talk a bit about the provincial political landscape from our perspectives. We'll discuss the Alberta party as we do on this show. Stephen Mandel is the new leader. So we'll chat about whether or not we have one of each of a right center and left party or two right parties and a center party or two left parties and a center party. And we'll get to talk about being a woman candidate. But before any of that, Janelle and Leanne, we should probably chat about who we are and share some of our own experiences in politics. So my name is Leanne Bell and I'm the director of stakeholders for the UCP caucus. Um, I have been involved in politics for about 10 years. I have done campaigns is probably the thing I'm, I'm best at, and I do visuals would be my area of expertise. Um, Ryan and I met in politics and uh, have been campaigning ever since. So I'm Janelle. I currently work in communications, but um, have done work in politics and in academia as well. And um, my primary political experience has been in nonpartisan municipal campaigns. So I've done a lot of work in both communications and management on that side. Um, I uh, like to say that I am retired from uh, from partisan politics, at least as um, as a day job. But I do get involved in some of those campaigns as well. Um, and this is Kyla, and I uh, have had the distinct pleasure of working on campaigns with both of these brilliant women. Um, and mostly my experience has been as a volunteer on very different kind of campaigns at all different levels. Um, and I work in the nonprofit sector. So that's where I come from. I thought it'd be neat if we started with some of our personal stories about experiences that we've had working in politics as women. Um, I'm going to start off with with one of my very favorite stories. Um, I was in a meeting uh, and my boss was on speakerphone and there's about 10 people in the room and I uh, felt that things were not going in a particular way. I uh, tried to course correct them and uh, after feeling very frustrated and not heard, I ended the conference call closed my laptop, marched out of the room, slammed that door, and I slammed the preceding door until the wall shook. I was so mad. And then I went out and I left the building for 20 minutes until I could collect myself. That behavior from a woman would be very differently perceived if you were a man. If you were a man and you acted with that sort of force, you would be decisive, you would be strong and powerful. When you're a woman and you slam doors and end conference calls, you're emotional, you're moody, you're indecisive. Yeah, well, and it's interesting to me, just thinking about the Me Too movement and some of the conversations that it has sparked in my life, and I think in the lives of a lot of the women that I know, um, is, okay, so it started being about sexual violence. And obviously, this is a huge part of the movement and is still one of the um, foundational elements of uh, the media attention that we've seen and a lot of the stories that are coming out. But I think for me, it really highlights the systemic differences between how genders are treated in all aspects of the workforce. So I have a lot of the same stories. And, you know, you talk to women... Um, 
from any uh, any corner of either sides of the political spectrum. And everybody has a story like this. So I was just thinking, for example, so the story that comes to mind for me as well um, wasn't about sexual violence, but it was about feeling demeaned because of my gender in the workforce. And, you know, we all have lots of little stories like this. And um, for me, I was working as um, a policy analyst and uh, advising a set of executives. And there were a group of employees in the room and I was the only non-male and I was also um, one of the more senior advisors at the time. And uh, one of the executives gave me a plate of food and said, oh, this is my dinner. Go heat it up, please, while we keep talking through this um, through this issue. And I remember just kind of being stunned and then doing it and then coming back and thinking, why did I do that? You know, I didn't stand up for myself. I didn't think about it. I just sort of was conditioned to just kind of... Uh, take whatever they they threw at me right and I think that's kind of um, a story that I've heard echoed from a lot of women is you know we get into these situations um, and there's a systemic reason we get into them and then you kind of blame yourself for having gotten into it in the first place when actually it's about um, a system that's set up to treat women differently than it treats men. I had a similar experience where I was 18 and I was working in an HR department for one of the health uh, boards at the time and my boss, who was one of the directors of HR, we were having a really innocent conversation about rugby. Um, and I was talking about how I wanted to try it at some point, at which point he opened his office door and proclaimed loudly to the entire office that I would make a great hooker. Oh, and this is geez. in front of like all of my female colleagues. This is in human resources. So, I mean, all of us have stories like this where we've um, definitely had awkward conversations as a result of people just not treating women as equals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And to me, this is the point is um, this isn't about a series of isolated incidents. It's about a system. And this is, you know, every every woman you meet has these sorts of stories. One of the things that I quickly realized when I felt this was that I didn't have any women around to help champion me. I read this article that the women in the Obama administration had the same problem where men were, were still treating them differently. And I thought, heck, if it happens with the Obama administration, you know, well, it must happen everywhere. And they did this thing called amplifying, yeah. where they amplified women, except that I was the only woman uh, very frequently. So for me, in my experiences, some of the strongest feminists in my life have been men. Uh, I had a colleague, Matt Solberg, who ensured I was in every meeting, that I was not forgotten, that I wasn't just there as the secretary role, but that my value was noticed. Uh, one of my MLAs, Nathan Cooper, also uh, encouraged me to start speaking sooner in meetings so I could get involved in the conversation sooner. Uh, so I, I would like to sort of shout out the men that have uh, echoed my voice in meetings. And it's an interesting point, um, this idea that I think when you have campaigns that shine a light on inequities, um, I think there's maybe this instinct for some men to feel attacked by it and, and to feel like, okay, well, you're pointing a finger at all men and, um, you know, not to get into the not all men hashtag world, but um, the idea that it's a system, again, to me is the important part here, right? So this isn't about individual men because individual men can can make a huge contribution to changing um, their sort of culture and they must and they have to to, um, to actually make any real progress on some of these issues. So uh, to me, um, right now, I think men uh, have to and can be a part of the solution. But what I see as really important is having women's full participation in the workforce and having that... Um, 
sort of be, begin to change some of the systems that we're seeing right now. So I, I think that while we need men to help with that transition, I think the end goal is eventually to have as many women mentors who are available to um, to women as we currently have for men. So trying to have more um, more of a, a set of systemic changes um, that I think are going to take some time to develop. But um, I think it is necessary for men to help out and be involved but I think um, really once we see true equity we'll start to see some of these systems maybe collapse and that should be the end goal right is to not have these systems in the first place and we should note that right now Ryan and Dave are quietly moving a toddler to the basement so that we can fully participate in this podcast (laughs) we have reversed the gender roles for purposes of this uh of this specific discussion but um that that is a big part of it though right is um as much as women need to be more involved in the political spheres and the business spheres we need men to do more to help out at home to help out with childcare, to do things that have traditionally fallen to women for less money less pay in a lot of cases no money and no recognition right um so for me equity is is two pieces it's both about women getting more involved in some areas and it's also about men getting more involved in some mm-hmm. areas one of the things that i wanted to talk about is why is it so hard for women to get into the important meetings? One of the things that I had identified um, for me was inferred competency. When I would see myself and a male colleague, and if I was even more qualified, um, things that weren't relevant to my competency were were questioned. So um, my temper or how I dressed or how I acted, which none of which would have anything to do with my ability to do my job. Whereas when you, when colleagues would meet a male and, and ask them to do a job, they would assume they could do it. They would assume they were able to do whatever was put in front of them, whether they had proven that or not. Have you ever had a male colleague or someone you're in a meeting with be given credit for your idea? Because they are just there. And that seems to be the right person to attribute that idea to. <laughs> I, I think a lot of women have had that happen. <laughs> when we were talking about doing this podcast, I think that there's a little bit of imposter syndrome as well from some of the members here because we were kind of talking about, um, or at least I was thinking, um, you know, I'm not sure that I necessarily am the right person to be doing this. I don't know if I have the background or the skills to be able to give um this sort of analysis um, and you start to think about it and you you realize, okay, well, I guess, you know, we've all done a fair bit of this work, but I think that there's even a set of internalized um, expectations that can sometimes pop up as well. So, uh, you know, it's, again, it's a system, right? So it's, uh, it's something that, um, that we all have to some degree internalized. And I think women do this, men do this, we do it to ourselves. And it's of note that I think even the stories that we shared today about like what we've experienced ourselves, those are mild compared to some of the stuff that I know each mm-hmm. of the women here have actually faced too on Absolutely. top of those. We're not giving you the full picture. Another point I thought was how often I was invited to be hanging out with my male colleagues. Everyone was very keen to hang out with Ryan. Um, now, perhaps the door slamming incident uh, made people not want to hang out with me, which would be fair, <laughs> fair, but... I also was was anxious that, you know, I, I didn't fit in. I was going to say the wrong thing, and I do say the wrong thing, That but that I somehow had this expectation I needed to be something I wasn't because I wasn't invited to social hangouts with all the guys. Yeah, and, you know, it's, uh, it's really fascinating thinking about um, some of the political jobs that I've had as well and how much political culture 
um, really does define what spaces you feel like you have access to. So for me, I'm not really um, I'm not really a big drinker, um, which I know is sort of uh, sort of a sacred thing in a lot of political spheres. Um, I am not really into sports. I can't play golf. So you'd be shocked at how much those things actually matter to some extent when you're getting involved in um, politics. So I, I remember um, previously I was the president of the Students Union at the U of A and I got invited to, I want to say, four. 14 golf tournaments, but I didn't play golf, which sounds like a silly thing. And in some ways that's not gendered. But um, but when you look at some of the skills that people are typically given as they're growing up, there's a class element there if we want to get into some interesting um, potential disagreements. Um, so golf is pretty expensive. It's something that not a lot of people have access to. It's also, um, it tends to be something that men do more than women and certainly has a history of that having been the case. So it was so interesting to me how many opportunities I missed out on because of that simple thing. Um, and we really don't have a lot of spaces that are um, typically or stereotypically female um, that hold a lot of access to power. So I think that when you talk about the political culture of any given space and um, who has access to it, it's typically not women. And that's manifested in ways that have perpetuated that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, like I, during the last municipal election in Edmonton, um, I hosted along with my community league a forum for poli- for the various politicians that were running for Ward 7. Um, and I brought my toddler to this forum thinking that this would be an inclusive space. It was community league, all those things, um, and was asked to leave because he was making too many joyful noises. Um, too badly. Anne wasn't there for I that. Know. She could have slammed, <laughs> slammed some doors, doors on the way up for It would have been awesome. I could have, yeah. I don't know how many doors the Highlands Golf Course has mm-hmm. to slam, but still, it was one of those moments where I realized that, yes, there's so many barriers, not just from my gender, but also as, as my position as a young mother, too. So there's a lot of, um, I think, a lot of things that we have to think about in our political circumstances. And I think that the NDP, for the most part, has done a really interesting job of that, having pregnant ministers, having, you know, baby change tables installed throughout the ledge, things like that. I don't know what your perspectives are on that, but... Yeah, well, it, it's um, I, I certainly think that we're seeing some of those cultural changes. And I hope that uh, my my ultimate hope is that um, as we have more women who are ministers and more women who are MLAs and more women who are young mothers doing these things, um, that that will then in turn open up those spaces to more people from, you know, all all uh, areas of the political spectrum to to feel like they have access to um, political spaces. So I, I think even beyond elected representatives, um, I think seeing um, young mothers, seeing um, women from all all backgrounds, um, seeing them believe that they have um, the ability to to be involved in that process. So maybe not even running as a member, but, um, you know, voicing their opinion in the same way that men traditionally have in the past. And something that I also wanted to mention that I think um, is, is worth talking about a little bit as well. We talk a lot about women having access to these spaces, but um, any marginalized group as well, and particularly if you're a woman and come from another marginalized background. So um, one example I like to think of is um, even getting into the legislature. So people um, who might have different abilities, um, you know, just even trying to navigate some of the physical spaces can be really challenging. Um, people who um, come from all sorts of, I think, racialized or um, traditionally marginalized backgrounds, um, not only are they not used to being involved in political spaces in a lot of cases, but traditionally have felt quite attacked or maybe um, felt actively discriminated against by these by these spaces. So I think um, as we're thinking about women's access to politics, thinking about the ways that um, people from all of these different backgrounds and sometimes when you have more than one of those marginalized identities um, it's even more difficult 
Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was Me Too and how it has impacted us, uh, where, where we think the movement is and uh, what we think uh, can be done with Me Too. One of the things that uh, has turned Ryan into a feminist is I have had a number of conversations with him where he just didn't realize that this was happening for me, that when I walk into my parkade and it's seven o'clock and there's three cars and it's pitch black, that I carry my keys uh, like a little spear between my knuckles. Ryan is 6'4 and a white dude and has never felt intimidated in a parkade or in any physical space. And the idea that I didn't feel safe um, was very rattling to Ryan. It had never occurred to him. The times that I have uncomfortably shared with Ryan what people have said to me, how they have treated me, has has changed um, how Ryan has felt about it. But it also has changed how I felt about it because um, watching Ryan react when I say, um, this male said this to me, in my mind I have for my whole life said, oh, that was my fault, or I shouldn't have dressed like that, or I shouldn't have acted like that. But watching an outsider react and be completely um, alarmed that people talk to women like that made reinforced that that was not appropriate uh, behavior. Yeah, and I think, um, especially given the allegations against Kent Hare, for instance, in elevators, um, and I kept, I spoke to a couple women about this, and they kept saying, there will be more. And, you know, those uh, those feelings of being unsafe in your work environment, unsafe in a place where people are in leadership positions and you don't feel like you can say anything back. I think that there's there's definitely a movement afoot. And I think women are, are starting to realize that we have to make those stories more um, more prevalent. And a lot of those uncomfortable conversations are necessary so that we can have men in our lives, like Ryan, for instance, who um, is a feminist and who can help advocate on behalf of women alongside women, especially in these kinds of circumstances. It's an interesting discussion thinking about how um, this discomfort that I think a lot of women have borne um, personally over the years is now being externalized a little bit. And it's interesting to see um, men starting to be uncomfortable now and thinking, okay, maybe I did something that I now worry was was problematic. And uh, so I, I think it's this really interesting exercise in in women taking some of the things that they've taken on and saying, okay, I'm not going to take this on anymore. I'm going to put this out there. And even if that ends up being problematic for some of the men that have been part of my life or some of the men that I've interacted with at work, um, that's going to be their problem now, not my problem. And I think um, for me, that's been one of the most interesting and powerful things is um, how uh, women from across, again, the political spectrum and across a variety of different industries have decided, okay, I'm not going to internalize this anymore. Yeah, I think saying it out loud and saying it to other people also reinforces how how we feel about it as well in the sense that um, that isn't appropriate. You shouldn't say that. And it gives us a stronger voice to say that when it happens the next time. Um, I don't think we can stop this sort of uh, behavior. But being able to speak for ourselves and say, no, I'm not going to let you say that. And I'm going to talk about it with other people. And that's not appropriate. And you should be concerned about your behavior. And you should be reflective of your behavior and how you treat women. So it's interesting to me because um, we, I think you kind of said there, um, we aren't going to change this behavior. But I actually think we will change this behavior. And I think that's part of maybe the systemic piece of it is I think... um, 
at the root of this is that there is this power inequity between men and women, right? And particularly in a lot of political um, spheres, and because that's our background, I'll keep picking on politics. But I mean, you look at just about any political party and just about any government through all of history, left and right. I mean, we're seeing that change now in some cases, but really we're not there yet. Um, and uh, and typically, I mean, that power at both the um, at both the staff level and the elected representative level, and then also at the volunteer level um, in terms of the actual strategic side of things has been men. So um, for me, a big part of changing that culture and actually changing that behavior is about getting more women involved in politics. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more uh, later in this episode, but um, I really do believe that while that's not a panacea, because, you know, women are people, we're still going to disagree about things. We're still going to make bad policy choices. Women are still going to be, in some cases, mediocre. We're still going to be um, all of these things that men are. We don't have all the answers. Exactly. Women don't have all the answers. But I think um, parity is certainly one piece of that puzzle to, to changing certain <laughs> types of things. And then represent representation from um, a variety of other uh, backgrounds and spheres is another piece of changing that as well and again all people make mistakes all people do bad things but the more people we have that have different experiences the better we can all be I think at trying to trying to piece together a better way of doing these things I would disagree in that I don't necessarily think that political parties are changing I think that they've written crisis communication plans to deal with it but I would take the Ontario PCs as an excellent example of what have they done culturally to address this? Nothing. They've written a crisis communication plan. They're going to get rid of any candidate that has this. But there is a culture that has been in place for centuries that has led to this, and that is not being addressed anywhere, in as far as I can as far as I can see, where people are changing the transparency of the internal workings of political parties, the internal process of how they deal with complaints. Everyone knows uh, Patrick Brown. Um, and those people don't sort of just spring from the earth on their own. Um, they are nurtured and protected inside of our political parties. And the, I think it was a McLean's piece this past week where they knew this was a problem and they didn't do anything. They wrote a plan. They did not do anything to, they, Patrick Brown should have gone, been gone the moment that he came into that party and they knew this was a problem. This is not going anywhere. So I've heard a lot of people say that we have this standard of innocent until proven guilty and that this is a legal standard that exists for a reason. And um, what's interesting to me is that um, people are applying this standard outside of a legal context when they talk about um, when they talk about Patrick Brown or when they talk about um, other people who are facing social consequences for something. So, I, you know, we have innocent until proven guilty because we have a political institution in the state that has the power to put people in jail. We don't have that same standard for our everyday interactions with people. We have a balance of probabilities. That's how we uh, that's how we adjudicate the majority of our interactions with people. And to me, this is a perfect example. Um, running for office um, under the banner of a political party, because that's all they're losing. He could still run for office under the banner of his own name. Um, losing that is is not equivalent to being put in jail. Um, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to look at the balance of probabilities and say, it is, it is most likely based on the evidence that we have at hand and based on what we know about assault and what we know about sexual misconduct, that probably he is guilty about what he was accused of. And socially, we'll use whatever levers we have to, to be able to um, protect women from that. I would also say that I want our political parties to not hold the baseline for a candidate to be, is this person a criminal or not? Absolutely. It should be way higher. It should be... Um, 
they should be setting a standard of social um, appropriate behavior for that party. They're the standard bearer of, of, of what we're campaigning on. Isn't there a screening process for candidates for political office or political parties? So I think we're seeing a lot of political parties um, starting to think about what that screening process means. But I think it gets back to Leanne's point of um, if if we see this as just about a screening in process as opposed to a cultural shift, I don't think we'll see the changes that we need to be able to actually um, shift some of these really toxic cultures. And, you know, I know a lot of folks um, from my personal life who are who are brilliant um, and extremely involved in their community and extremely active who don't get involved in politics for these specific reasons. All right, so let's move on to the provincial political landscape. You two come from very different perspectives and you're both exceptional and brilliant. So I'd love to hear where you think the lay of the land is right now and what you're what you're hoping for in the coming months, anything that's you know new and exciting. Some ministries that we don't often talk about. What, what would you like to chat about? Education. I can't imagine a subject matter that is more important to me as a mother. When I consider the future of our province, education is ignored. Uh, it is not given the attention. It is thrown money, but not um, not goals, not outcomes. Uh, the AG recently failed because it failed the Alberta education system because uh, the class sizes are so huge. Um, and, and that is not acceptable. This is one of those sorts of things that it isn't maybe as sexy as talking about political strategy, but every, every parent on my block is talking about our class sizes. Every parent on my block is talking about new math and how we're having to supplement our public education with tutors to teach them actual math and I am concerned about where each of the parties are, are going to go with this I'm interested to see uh, UCP AGM is coming up in May what sort of new and inventive things are going to come up in education one of the things I'm excited about is is choice in education um, from the sense that I think that being able to put your kid in any school in the city makes the schools better and I think that that allows for a higher quality of education and also allows for kids that have different interests and different niche needs to be able to send their child to a school that um, represents that. Yeah, and see, this is really interesting because this is one of the areas where I think we have a very different perspective. So education is uh, an area that's pretty close to my heart as well. Um, a, kind of a family uh family uh, profession, I guess you could say. Um, both my parents are teachers, several of my sisters, family members, the whole extended crew. Um, so uh, when we talk about education, where I come from is public education. So um, I very much believe that the best way to have a strong education system is a public system that allows for options within that system. And the best way to do that is through adequate funding, um, providing the supports that we need to be able to have um, all of those niche needs met within a system. Um, so we do have one of the most generous funding models in the country for um, private schools. And in my mind, that's a big problem because those funds are diverted away from um, from the vital uh, public system support services that we need to reduce class sizes, to be able to provide those supports and resources. Um, and I'm not uh, opposed to private education per se, but I do think that if that's a choice that people are making, it should be a choice that they're funding as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think that this, I agree in the in your sense of the choice of education should be within the public model. Um, 
I also feel, and this is maybe just my Edmonton bias showing, but that the bulk of the private schools are in Calgary because the quality yeah. of the education system in Edmonton has been for decades so much more higher. Um, so if we could make Calgary be as awesome as Edmonton, then we don't have to stop funding all those private schools in Calgary. Hey, I spent two years doing education in, in Calgary. I think I turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's well, and it's really fascinating. I'd love to hear from the perspective of somebody from Calgary. But um, I do think that the Edmonton model, though, has provided a really solid foundation um, for the rest of the province in terms of how um, choice and education could work in a way that could be privately or uh, publicly funded um, and absolutely I, I think where we might have a little bit more um, of a conversation maybe in a future episode is around whether we have an adequately funded system and what that looks like in terms of reducing class sizes in terms of providing the sort of supports that students need um, through aids and special assistance and language programs and all of that sort of thing um, because from my point of view um, it's one thing to say innovate but I uh, you know teachers have been innovating with very little um very little new money for a long time. So thinking about what that means in terms of adequately funding um, the sector is, I, I think, a really interesting discussion for another time, maybe. The other part about education is the physical buildings that I'm anxious about. The lack of nimbleness from Alberta education to foresee um, a huge baby boom and not prepare schools for those children seems bizarre to me and the idea that in the future our children are going to go through high school in shifts is is blindingly mad and here's where i say i'd say maybe we can uh, as a group blame the the former pcs for that damn those pcs <laughs> and their, and their uh, very long-term strategy of uh placing them where it was politically expedient um and i think we're still seeing the legacy of that um through uh through to this current day. So we have seen quite a bit of responsiveness from this government in terms of um, building new schools through their stimulus package, um, through the economic downturn. Um, I do think that's been one really positive thing that across the board has been a popular policy and something that I, I think um, parents will maybe start to see some of that, um, some of that fruit being born as uh, new schools come up in some of these outskirts. Something else that I think is really interesting that they're doing in, in that particular uh, ministry would be um, Egan did those rounds of consultations talking about racism and how we can end those in classrooms. I thought that was a really interesting take. I'm wondering what the results of that will be, actually. Also, the, the development of curriculum talking about Indigenous issues and Indigenous history within Canada um, is also incredibly important given this age of reconciliation that we're going through and whether or not we actually um, are able to achieve that in a way that's um, uh, benefits the province and also, um, you know, creates a better sense of equity within our, our system as a whole. So this actually brings us to uh, maybe another topic we wanted to talk about, less at the provincial scene and more at the federal scene, but I think it still very much applies to um, to Alberta and to every province. Um, so the results of the Stanley trial, we've, um, we've had some really, really uh, difficult conversations, I think, over the past few weeks about whether or not Indigenous Canadians have access to justice in the same way that other Canadians do and what it means to have a series of very high profile um, murders, um, deaths of Indigenous folks um, without any subsequent justice for those deaths or without um, without convictions, I'll say at least. Um, so I, from, from my point of view, um, 
these cases, you know, the the Bushy trial, I see that's a telling slip right there. The Stanley trial, it felt like the Bushy trial. It felt like um, it felt like the victim was on trial for me. Um, the Stanley trial, um, the results of, again, the murder of Tina Fontaine. Um, to me, these highlight um, the fact that Indigenous Canadians are, are not getting um, justice. They're not necessarily seeing um, anyone convicted for their killings. Um, and it would be one thing if we saw, you know, a few isolated incidents of um, of people dying without um, a conviction. Uh, but what we're seeing for Indigenous Canadians is this pattern. And I think um, that's been really evident over the past few weeks um, of, uh, of them dying and then there being um, these real glaring holes, I think, within the justice system where, you know, from from the way that the legal system has treated them to the way that the juries were set up to the way that it was reported on in the media and then talked about um, within communities afterwards, where we're seeing a real inequity. I just listened to Marie Hanine speak about both these trials and her perspective was very interesting. In both cases, she said it isn't necessarily that the court system has failed them but that the specifically police system has perhaps failed them and that we need to consider how we select juries. So not just for indigenous populations, but for homeless populations generically, their ability to sit on juries is is not there. They cannot miss um, being away from their homes. They cannot afford that. They don't have access to being called to be jurors. So the idea that these people would have their cases tried by their peers it is not there as there isn't sort of the social supports for their peers to be present in court. And I thought that was a fascinating idea I had never considered before. But Marie's point wasn't was that, that the trials themselves were fair, but there are supports around that that need to be reevaluated both in how police interact with Indigenous populations and the jurors. And I think that there's some in like my community, definitely, who have argued that Stanley actually did get a, 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 a trial by a jury of his peers and that all of the peers were, you know, visibly seemed to be Caucasian. There were no Indigenous jurors on that particular case. And I think that that's highly problematic because it's assuming that your peers are of your ethnic grouping rather than of people that are made up of your community. So I think that there's some troubles with that too. Well, and in some cases, this is an inversion from what we've typically seen when we talk about problems with a jury of your peers, right? Because in, in typical cases, what we've seen is that the person on trial is from a minority group and they're tried by a jury that doesn't necessarily represent them um, in terms of um, ethnic background or in terms of life experience. Um, so I think we're seeing an inversion of that in this case where um, we have a man who um, who's Caucasian and we have a jury who's fully Caucasian and is that justice does that represent justice um, and should we uh, be getting rid of for example the idea of the preemptive challenge um, is that something that is fair to um, within the legal system I mean as um, as an accused you have very little access to control when you're in a trial situation a preemptive challenge is one lever that you have the ability to pull and stanley did pull that lever in a number of cases on on this trial um was that appropriate is that um is that a mechanism that still has value is that something that was used appropriately in this case um and would that have changed the outcome i think these are really big and valid questions um from my perspective as well um i i do think that there are problems with the judicial system and the policing system, but I, um, I certainly think that um, those those problems are probably for people with a with a better 
legal background um, than mine. But what's been interesting to me is the um, the social um, consequences of, of these trials. And certainly in my life, there have been some really big conversations around these. Um, and they've exposed a, what I think is quite a bit of uh, deep-seated, deep-seated racism within communities that I've grown up with, within people that I've, I've talked to, and people who might not recognize it as racism, racism as well, right? Um, so for example, um, I've heard a lot of people say things like, um, you know, uh, if you're protecting your property um, and you shoot someone, maybe maybe the person deserved it, right? And I, I don't think we'd be hearing that if it was a white kid. Um, I grew up in a rural area as a white kid. We did a lot of stupid things. We never got shot and we never worried about being shot, right? I mean... And it's of note that on like Janelle's Facebook page, there was like 150 plus comments on this particular post about this trial. Um, I also want to make the point that um, I'm someone who has, uh, I'm an army brat, so I grew up around guns my whole life. And frankly, the argument that he made that it was a hang fire um, and that that was an accidental thing that he didn't pull the trigger, I personally find it at fault in many ways. First of all, the first rule you learn when you are handed a gun is not to point it at people. So that's one of the biggest challenges I have with this particular case is that he was acquitted despite having taken a life and despite not having followed proper um, firearm procedures and ownership. One of the other things that I think is relevant to jurors these days is that you can't find someone that doesn't have an opinion already formed on a case. They've heard about it on Twitter, on Facebook, and finding someone to be that hasn't already been convinced of 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 guilt or not is is maybe outdated that perhaps juries for this day and age just don't make sense for the world we live in we have too much information available to us we have our ideas already totally a friend of mine just sat on a jury and she said it was the most boring experience of her life being locked in a room where you could see where the tv had been physically removed from the wall <laughs> because she couldn't have access to anything so i and i totally agree with you Leanne, that maybe that there needs to be a new a new way that we frame how we select juries and think about them why don't we just say what all, we're all thinking about the alberta party really another old white man you know, that's, uh, I think that's certainly true to an extent. It's, uh, but uh, He wears bow ties. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> bow ties absolutely make it better. It's uh, what, I, what I think is interesting, though, and maybe something worth, you know, a two-minute discussion here is um, where does the Alberta Party sit um, politically in terms of the political spectrum? Because from my perspective, I mean, you're seeing essentially uh, the previous PC party being, um, being in many ways resurrected through um, a number of high-profile um, previous MLAs and previous uh, ministers who are now involved in the creation of uh, of this new party that's risen from the ashes and uh, of of the PCs in a lot of ways. So from my perspective, I think they're trying to brand themselves as a fairly centrist party. And I see them as um, a center-right party. And definitely, like I, in conversations I've had with people that are former PCs, they're looking for a political home. So this makes sense. And now that they've elected a former PC cabinet minister as the leader, perhaps this is where people are going to flock. The question I have is what what this looks like in terms of the the vote in, especially in Edmonton and also in Calgary. I've heard from both sides that in Edmonton, the Alberta party is going to challenge the NDs, but also in Calgary that they're going to challenge the UCP. Leanne, I don't know. What do you think about that? Same. I've heard the same thing. Uh, people talk about Edmonton Glenora as as being in play, which is absolutely absurd in my mind. Uh, I can't imagine when I start thinking about specific seats, which seats are the Alberta Party going to pick up? And I can maybe get to three at best. Uh, and I, I can't imagine who they're pulling from 
and that there would be such a groundswell for the internet party uh, to to take actual votes away. I do like that. Um, the internet party. I Actually, to me, uh, the question isn't whether or not the Alberta party will get a few seats. I think they may get a small number, but I think the bigger question is to what extent they'll siphon votes away from other political parties. And I, to be perfectly frank, though, I don't see that as being a, a huge factor in the upcoming election. I could very well eat those words, but I, I very much believe that Albertans see um, a more and more polarized um, political landscape and they know that voting for the Alberta party um, in many cases is is um, choosing to defect from the real choice that I think Albertans are going to have and that's between the NDP and the UCP. The only place I think that it will be interesting in the upcoming election will be the debate. It will be one woman and two dudes. What about the Alberta liberals? Who? Well, and it's a, it's especially fascinating to me because um, in the lead up to the 2015 election, I, I absolutely think that the debate was one of those defining moments of the campaign. And I think um, when Rachel Notley um, took on Prentice and um, and the rest of the leaders um, and very much um, distinguished herself from from those other um folks. I think that's one area where we've seen her really shine. So I do think that that'll make for some very interesting um, debates. And we could probably summarize a couple of our things by saying that math is hard comment certainly uh, influenced a lot of things. I think that would be a me too moment in some absolutely. cases too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So because Ryan's not here and we've got these two brilliant women here to talk about um, Alberta politics and they've been involved with so many different kind of campaigns, we decided we'd talk about what it takes to be a candidate. So Leanne and Janelle are both going to talk about this. Um, They've both um, supported many candidates through the election process um, and have lots of incredible insight. So I'll leave it to Leanne to start us off here. I would uh, call on my experience of being with uh, Danielle Smith and some of the challenges that she faced that men don't. And I would start with when the fact that Danielle uh, didn't have children, which is not something that is publicly discussed when you're a male. Um, your role as a woman uh, at home gets called into into the political sphere where it does not belong, nor should it. It has no place there. Um, and maybe I'll just kind of... Yeah, and that was an interesting moment to me as well um, because you had this unique moment where not only was Danielle Smith um, one of the front-running candidates, but we also had Alison Redford, who's a front-running candidate. So we had two high-profile women. And the way that Alison Redford responded to that was actually quite gracious and I think um, made a huge difference in how... Um, how that moment played out. So the the staff member was let go. Um, there was a public apology. There was, um, I I think she showed a real um, capacity to be able to empathize with uh, with Danielle Smith and to be able to to really um, neutralize it in a way that I think might not have been possible with a male candidate. So it was a very an interesting moment to me. So if you were a woman running for office. Uh, what advice would you have? Like, What are your top three things that you would tell a woman who's considering running for office? The first thing that I would think about as a woman running would be how personal things are going to be. Um, your role as a mother, your role as a spouse, your parts of your life, how you dress um, when you after Christmas break have eaten too much turkey and your pants are tighter than they need to be. <laughs> that the most intimate details of your life are scrutinized in ways that that are so painful and hurtful and people are mean people are very mean when it comes to 
our outward facing our outward facing profile um the condition of our skin i know was was one thing that um i've i've worked with women candidates who have have struggled with the fact that they have acne and just you have to wear so much makeup for tv to look a certain way to center yourself with the people that love you and know who you are to remind yourself of why you're running and to remind yourself of all of the women around you that need you to stand up really strong and tall and just keep going just keep going and ignore them campaigns are difficult for anyone um there are always going to be personal attacks and there are always going to be very um hurtful things said but uh for women there's more arsenal that people have um to attack you with and that's because we live in this world that has um some very specific expectations for women that we don't have for men so uh things like appearance and actually it's uh it's something that i've talked about in past um at a very low level when i was running for um for president of the students union at the u of a i actually probably spent more time worrying about what people would say about my looks than i, I did about um some of the policy issues that we had come up because it, it's something that you know is uh, is going to um, you know it's going to happen, and um, my my advice would be um, that you find before even thinking about running for office, find women candidates you believe in and support them. Um, so spend some time really um, building your personal and political networks before you decide to run for office and lean on that support. Um, learn from the things that other women have experienced um, and also enlist um, the women and the men in your lives um, to do some of that work for you. So don't look at comments online. Um, get somebody else to do that. Don't um, don't be involved in um, even answering some of your own um, some of your own telephone messages and that sort of thing. I mean, have people filter some of that out for you so you don't have to be um, dealing with it yourself but you know we're talking about um sort of the triage strategy here when really again it gets back to that political culture i mean we can we can sort of um staunch the bleeding a little bit but i think um until there's a real shift in how we think about who uh who is a politician what does a politician look like and act like um and until we start thinking about women as serious um serious and worthy and um, representative political figures, I think we're going to see um, a, a reality in which for women, it is harder to be a politician. And I, I think that's something that's nowhere near um, ending right now. And um, my advice would be um, if you have a, this is my, my advice to, to all listeners. If there's a woman you disagree with, um, disagree with her policies but don't talk about what she looks like don't talk about what she dresses like don't talk about how her voice sounds don't talk about how her hair looks um talk about the issues and i i think that's that's the key to me is if um if politics were you know in a, in a dream world if politics were more about issues and less about affect and about um and about background and about all of those sorts of things i think we would see a really different um a really different outcome for women we're going to open up the old mailbag now. Kyla, what do we have? So the first one we have is an email from Tony Nakonchak. Can you be an MLA and also still be a committed family person? I've heard lots of stories about how hard it is on families and marriages. It's quite honestly what's kept me out of electoral politics to this point. And I don't plan on running until my kids are out of the house. But can it be done? So that's one question. And a very similar one was also asked via Twitter from Jason West. 
And his question is, how does one get through being a candidate without getting divorced? Any ideas on work-life balance in politics? How much does it cost? Oh, these are kind of separate questions, but still relevant. How much did you expect to fundraise? I have a good idea of some of this, but think it would be interesting for prospective candidates. So what do you think? My per- my, my personal opinion is that um, if you start from... Um if you start from a place of really evaluating your personal values and beliefs, um, that makes the whole question a lot easier. Um, I think it's impossible to um, be an elected representative and still be a whole human being unless you um, have thought very hard and very deeply about what you believe in and what you're committed to. I think if you um, truly, uh, if you truly have a sense of what you want to do with your life, and if politics is truly a part of that, I think you'll already have started to create the networks and the supports and the structures that you need to be able to get through um, a lot of those difficult times. So, for example, the people that I've seen who have been most successful in their lives and marriages as politicians have been people who have been committed to the work for a long time. Um, They've developed families and friends and support networks that fall within um, some of the political work that they've been doing. And they've spent a lot of time thinking about what... um, what they're willing to do and not do in order to um, achieve those goals. So, uh, so for from my perspective, the first the first thing you need to do is to really consider your values and how deeply they run, um, and whether or not electoral politics is the is the place for them. Because if it truly is, I think then you work from a place of okay, um, if this is what I'm if this is what I'm committed to doing with my life. Um, How do I um, involve my family in that? How does my family support me because they believe in these same things? So that just makes the whole process a lot easier. Now, Leanne, you were the spouse of a candidate and you had a tiny wee baby at home. Like, do you have any advice on this particular matter? As the spouse of someone who has run in two nominations and an election, the hardest part for me was how mean people were very publicly to Ryan. Uh, They never met him and they said the most horrible things to him. Um, some of these people were people that I, I knew, uh, so, someone um, that Ryan I knew quite well called into question whether Ryan had attended the University of Alberta, which is ironic given that he actually works for the, the University of Alberta. Um, at one point, um, Ryan had uh, talked about running uh, in one place and, and talked to someone who had said, no, I'll, I'll run somewhere else. And we donated to them and then, and then they turned out to be a, a future opponent. Uh, the the gamesmanship is very, very hard uh, as a spouse. Um, I have written some people's names on my heart and I'll hate them forever. <laughs> <laughs> but ha- the most important part for me was, one, do not go on social media. Um, Ryan was much better able to handle the criticisms against him than I was. Um, the urge to tweet at people when you are blinding mad is so high and so unproductive. The other thing uh, that Ryan and our team did really well was engaging me in a meaningful way. Not some token side job, uh, candidate wife nonsense, but I was engaged because I was valued. My role was valued. Ryan valued me strategically. He valued my input on, on everything that he did. So I felt very engaged, very invested. I felt like this wasn't just Ryan leaving the house to door knock for hours on end. I felt this, we were doing this as a family. Um, Henry has been to more political meetings and Sam than any child ever should. Uh, But we did it as a family and that was 
we shared in the ups and downs together and it was a very bonding experience for us as a family. Yeah. And making that decision to run, um, I don't think it's a personal decision. I think it's actually a family decision. I, I think in a lot of ways, um, man or woman in, in, you know, in different ways, um, because there's a gendered read on how these things always play out. But, um, whether you're a man or a woman, having your, your family bought into it, um, is, is a crucial component of, of both succeeding and also coming out of it as a whole person. And I, uh, I really, really believe that if you're going to do this, um, this difficult, impossible job, um, it, it really, um, requires you and your family to be committed to um, doing something very specific. So I guess that's my other piece of advice is have a reason to run that isn't just I want to be in politics and I want to be a politician. I think that's a terrible reason to run. Um, I think know what you want to achieve um, and know exactly how being an elected representative will help you with that. And um, know as a family that that's what you want and, and count the cost. Think about what it'll mean for you before getting into it. Um, I think, Jason, the last part of your question about how much it costs to run and how much to fundraise could be answered on a totally separate 45-minute long podcast. So I think we'll leave that to uh, Dave and Ryan to answer, um, other than to say fundraise enough. <laughs> costs a lot of money. It depends on uh, depends on what level of office you want to take, but a lot of money. Start fundraising now. Even in municipal campaigns, I mean, I remember running a successful municipal campaign for around the $30,000 mark, and now um, now they're upwards of 100000 or more. Um, so we really have seen... Um, and, and it's, you know, it's the typical question of money and politics, but we really have seen how um, money will play a, a major role in uh, in all levels of uh, campaigning. Okay, so we, another question that we got was from Joshua Waffler Thomas on Facebook. And uh, their question is, with the success of the Green Parties in BC, New Brunswick and PEI, do you think the Green Party of Alberta would ever elect an MLA? Are there any identifiable paths of success for them? So I think we all kind of have the same answer and we can say it all at the same time. No. no. <laughs> and really, um, you know, at, at this point, the Green Party is such a such a low presence in Alberta. I That could change, absolutely, if the Green Party spends some time really developing um, a strong base and, and working with um, some very electable candidates within specific writings. But I haven't seen any, any evidence of that so far. I cannot imagine a path to success, although I would much welcome a further divide on the left of the UCP. So welcome. Unless the Green Party comes out really strongly for pipelines, which I, I can't imagine it will ever happen. Yeah, I don't really see that either. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put this episode together. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please submit a review. I hear Ryan always wants to see five stars. Send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get at us on Twitter at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email at us at podcast at Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more discussion on Alberta politics in a few weeks. <laughs>